Welcome to the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast, a podcast about stage musicals that have been legally filmed and publicly distributed. The Filmed Live Musicals website contains information on nearly 200 musicals that have been captured live. Check it out at filmedlivemusicals.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 44 of the Filmed Live Musicals podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Lyons, and my guest today is composer, producer, and lawyer, Jay Kuo. Jay has written four musicals, including Upwardly Mobile, Insignificant Other, which won the Bay Area Theatre Critics Circle Award for Best Original Script, Worlds Apart, and Allegiance, which tells the story of Japanese-American citizens who are interned on American soil during World War II and won Best New Musical from the San Diego Theatre Critics Circle. Allegiance played on Broadway starring George Takei, Leia Salonga, and Telly Leung from November 2015 until February 2016. It was filmed live during its run and released in cinemas at the end of 2016, where it briefly held the Fathom Events record for the highest grossing Broadway film. The musical is now available on DVD and to stream on Broadway HD and Broadway On Demand. Welcome, Jay. Thanks for having me. So to start us off with, what made you fall in love with musical theatre? Well, I've always been a storyteller all of my life. Um, ever since a child writing uh, you know, fantasy stories, playing make-believe, but also uh, using um, musical storytelling as a way to sort of reach deep into the heart uh, very quickly. I loved uh, stories that were told in musicals uh, when I would watch things on television, like The Music Man or 1776. I just felt like they could transport me as a, as a child into another world very quickly. And so I wanted to be a part of that world. I wanted to be able to tell stories using music. And, uh, and it was something I started doing very, very early on in life. Did you take music lessons or theater classes? Yes, I was a trained classical pianist. In fact, I began playing when I was just four years old. And... Um, I would find any open piano and start to show <laughs> off to people. <laughs> My feet weren't even really long enough to, to reach the pedals sometimes. And, and, uh, but I love to play and love to entertain. And so I continued that through, uh, high school and through college until I realized it was really difficult to make a living as a musician. <laughs> so I, I decided I would go to law school and, and set aside those dreams of becoming a musician, a uh, composer. Because they were, it just seemed like something other people did. It wasn't something that I saw for myself. I found it as a very interesting and lovable hobby. But that all changed as I, uh, you know, continued to work on the side as a musical theater composer. And uh, eventually I left the law and went straight into producing and composing musicals. What was your first musical that allowed you to step away from practicing law? That was in San Francisco, Insignificant Others. I was practicing law and also uh, workshopping a new story, a new musical about five friends who moved from Ohio to San Francisco. It's kind of a nod to Armistead Maupin's series, Tales of the City, but it's sort of set in the modern day. And I realized that I was driving myself crazy because I was trying to hold on a full-time job and attending rehearsal every day. And the thing that got me up in the morning was rehearsal and not my job. And so eventually I said, you know, this is really what I want to do. I, I have to choose now between these two passions, one of which pays the bills and <laughs> the other which fills my heart. And so I chose the one that fills my heart. And I'm so glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you mentioned watching like 1776 and The Music Man. Did you watch filmed theater like on PBS or anything like that? Oh, yes. The one of the most affecting things I've ever seen was Sunday in the Park with George, which was filmed live by PBS. I think I, I probably watched it 20 times. I watched every nuance. And, and it, it struck me the difference there being the live audience and the idea that these actors knew they were being filmed and preserved for all time, but it had better not make a mistake. I couldn't <laughs> find any in, in that show. And it did, it did me to Sondheim in a way that you know, I hadn't really been exposed to. Out where I lived, uh, there was a lot of, in growing up in Arizona, there was not a lot of theater being performed live other than sort of your standard Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. And so the opportunity to see film theater like Sunday in the Park with George or other Sondheim uh, pieces into the woods, that was uh, revelatory for me. Mm. What what did it inspire for you? One of the things I, I, I realized is that so much of theater remains inaccessible to people because they don't live near large cosmopolitan cities where they can buy tickets or, or hope to get in the lottery. And, you know, the idea of, of, I didn't get to see my first Broadway musical until I was in high school. And so when we were doing Allegiance, the idea that we could film this and that, that generations to come could see what we had done on Broadway, that was very important to me. It was, very, it, it, it was a big motivating factor in my own experience of not being able to see much live theater, except in its filmed form. Mm-hmm. That's, I wish there were more people like you that understood the importance of it and that we need it more than ever. Yes, you know, we were one of the first productions, actually, to start to film even our workshops. Uh, we had a special arrangement that our producer hashed out with Actors Equity so that we could film our workshops and take that around to potential investors. It was an amazing opportunity to, to tell the stories of allegiance to people who were, for example, way out in Hawaii who really wanted to support the show, but there was no way they would come out to New York to see a workshop and think about investing. We had to go to them. And so uh, every time we did a staged reading, we filmed it. Every time we did a lab workshop, we filmed it. Even our our world premiere in San Diego, we knew we were going to have to raise another $9 million after that. Uh, And we filmed the the world premiere in order to raise the money for uh, the Broadway run. so uh, my experience sort of in filming early didn't begin with the Broadway production. It began when we assembled a group of actors standing around uh, music stands and singing. And I realized even that had the power to really affect people in a way that ordinary film or television really can't. Mm-hmm. These were This was a live moment captured, but uh, that the, the, the tension of that, the profound nature of that, the importance of that was all sort of baked into the uh, medium. I know some of that footage is in the documentary, uh, Allegiance to Broadway. Will we ever be able to see a full length, the full length capture of like the original Old Globe production? You know, it's, it's interesting. In order for us to release that, I think we'd have to go back and get releases from all of the actors and, and creatives who were, because we can't charge for it. Uh, that was, that, that was part of the deal. You know, the, the final Broadway version we could, uh, put into theaters because we had the right kind of contract. But mm. the, uh, all the Globe production, for example, we knew that 
we were going to be using it primarily and, and exclusively, actually, for fundraising. So we could show it in small venues to potential investors, but we could never air it. It's an interesting thing to, to go back. And after enough time, maybe there's people wouldn't care. And, you know, we'd love to, to see this. There are so many songs, actually, from that that never made it to Broadway in the Fans of allegiance would be amazing here to I'm sure. And also to see that how a musical progresses and evolves, and like that old adage that a musical is never completed or a musical is never finished, that it keeps evolving. And it would be really interesting to compare and contrast like the original version and then through the years of development through to Broadway. That would be interesting. In fact, I, I'm sure sure I have about two musicals worth of trunk songs uh, through that whole. <laughs> The whole process where I could actually tell the same story of Allegiance but use different songs. <laughs> <laughs> it that was sort of an amazing collage. Were you part of the negotiations with Equity to create those contracts? I was not. Uh, I we I have a producing partner, Lorenzo, and we really divided our uh, duties very carefully up that I was going to remain for Allegiance on the creative side uh, and so as not to create, a, you know, unforeseen conflicts of interest or, or, or negotiate against the production in some way. And so, um, you know, Lorenzo handled all of that. And, and rightfully so, I think that, that uh, having uh, one of the, having the composer in the room negotiating that is, is a little bit tricky. I think. Mm. Do you have a sense of how complex the negotiations were? Was there resistance from the unions to film? There was initial resistance. They they basically said no. And Lorenzo was persistent and went back and said, but what about this? No. But what if we did this? No. And I think they just got exhausted by him. <laughs> he was so persistent, like, like a barnacle. He just stuck. And, and eventually we came up with a workaround where we could work under an extra contract, not an AEA contract, mm-hmm. but it was going to be recorded. And so um, th- that required every member of the of uh, the cast to actually join Astra. <laughs> and uh, those who were not joined, we had to pay the fees, I remember. It was so it was so it was involved, but it uh, it got us around the the uh, equity contract restrictions. And now I think Actors Equity has really come around, I think it's much more standard these days to film uh, workshops. So to the extent that that stuff is now being preserved, I think Lorenzo gets a lot of credit for having broken down that door and that resistance. Mm. Uh, thankfully, long before pandemic happened, because uh, it's all a lot of it's now being done virtually. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, what a cool little piece of history that that is so important, and for preserving again that this process. It's not just the the final product we see on Broadway. There's you know so much development that happens beforehand, and I think it's really important for other practitioners and for students to see that process. And maybe there can be a, a three part DVD disc <laughs> released with with all of that back stuff. I would I would love to see it. <laughs> I think anybody starting out in this business would really do themselves a favor by watching the Road to Broadway uh, series uh, and just how much it takes to, to get onto Broadway. But even even then, before then, to, to sort of follow the the, um, the trail Allegiance had uh, cut for for all of this developmental work. Uh, so many uh, so many shows uh, 
lack sort of a fundamental uh, path forward because they don't understand what it would take to to achieve it. And uh, maybe one day I'll teach a seminar on that, but I think that it's it's uh, incredibly useful. And and I'll tell you, you know, if I had been told it would take seven years uh, from the date I first met George Takei until our first day of rehearsal on Broadway, I would have maybe thought twice about it, but I still would have done it. So let's rewind to that day in 2008 when you uh, you first attended Forbidden Broadway and met George Takei sitting behind you. Yes, that was uh, quite an amazing week. It was actually my first week with Lorenzo in New York City. We were uh, scouting shows to produce and uh, hoping to meet a lot of people and going to every show we could, even off Broadway. You know, and the chance encounter that night. Uh, I really think it's, it's kind of cosmic in nature. We're running into my childhood hero, sitting right behind me in off Broadway theater. You have to understand, when I was growing up, George Takei was the only Asian thing regularly on television. It was uh, quite something to to meet him that night. Uh, I and I met him because because I heard his distinctive bass voice behind me talking about theater, and I kept thinking, God, I know that voice. <laughs> And I turned around, and, and sure enough, there there he is, right behind us with, with his husband, Brad. And so that was that was something else to, to have happened. Your first this week in New York to meet your childhood hero. And then the next night to to be sitting in the same row again at in the Heights. Well, that's when you start to think the universe is playing. Right? <laughs> that's when you we were probably eight or nine feet down from George and Brad the very next night in the same row, and that's that's. Had we been been in one row off, I don't know if we would have seen each other. But there we were waving at them, and Brad leans over and whispers something to George. And apparently later we find out he said, "I think they're stalking us, George." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but you know, the, what's what's really amazing um, about that second night not not just the fact that we ran into George Decay twice in a row uh, in a theater, but the fact that it happened at In the Heights because. It was that show, it was the song in that show that caused George to start to weep profusely right before uh, the end of Act One. Uh, the song was Inutil, and and George uh, got George thinking about how useless, this, the word means useless, how useless his own father felt mm-hmm. in protecting their family during the terrible years of the internment. And so... Uh, George was weeping, and I couldn't help but notice that was happening because nobody else was crying to that song. Uh, it's a great song, but George was really, the waterworks were flowing. And and so it gave me a chance to ask him an admission why he had been so affected by that by that song. And that's when he told us um, his story about growing up in the internment camps. And as an Asian American, I've heard Bosnian camps, I've even studied them in law school, studied the cases around it, but I've never heard somebody who survived the camps tell their story to me. And I got chilled. I, every hair on my arm stood up. I looked at Lorenzo and he was like buzzing around like, like he was thinking the same thing. And I said it out loud. I said, this, Mr. Decay, what the story you just told me would make a fantastic musical. 
And and he said, well, I've always assumed it would should be on the Great White Way. <laughs> and so uh, he gave me an email, and I said I was going to send him a story idea and, and maybe a sample song, and off to the races we were. So I have a question. Did you take in any of Act 2 of In the Heights? <laughs> or were you too busy no. percolating allegiance in your head? <laughs> That's a very good question. You know, I can't, I can't really remember what happened in the second act of In the Heights. I remember the first act really well. And so I think both, both Lorenzo and I spent that whole rest of the week just bubbling. I mean, we were thinking about what, what should we call this and, and, I know, uh, how do we even get started on, on something like this? And, you know, the first thing I did when I got back to San Francisco, uh, where I was still based, is I, I checked out of the library everything I could find on the internet. And I lived and breathed it for weeks before I sat down for the first song. Uh, and, uh, you know, I read about the 10 different internment camps and the name Heart Mountain stood out at me. Not because of anything historical, but because it sounded so haunting at the time. And so it just drew me. And what I found out when I was researching that was the incredible story of the resistance that happened there, which I think so few people ever heard about, Mm -hmm. including myself. And I consider myself fairly uh, knowledgeable on Asian American history. I did not know about the resistance at all. And now millions of people do. It's it's a it's a wonderful gift um, that that George gave us that day, and that we were able to give back to the world. And so uh, it wasn't for three weeks that I sat down to write a, a song at all, and I realized I, I was we were going to call the show Allegiance because of the story of the resistors at Heart Mountain, and and that um, we, the sample song was called Allegiance. I recorded it in, in my bedroom on a MIDI mic. <laughs> with my friend Jason who sang it and we sent it to George and uh, he wrote back in an email, uh, you, you saw me weeping at In the Heights and now I'm weeping again reading and listening to this song. You must come down to Los Angeles where we will have lunch and talk about the future of this show. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you get an email like that from your childhood duo, there, you know, there's only one email I've ever received that even comes close to that. And and that was when, after months, we had sent the script of Allegiance to Leia Salongas and her agent. And and then Warren Leia doesn't do any projects. Um, she, you know, she, I grew up um, listening to her sing Miss Saigon, uh, and and just the idea of ever getting a chance to meet Leia Salongas was sort of a, a dream of mine. And I was in. Uh, Mexico on vacation and, and not really checking emails. I was, had a margarita in my hand and I opened my, my computer up and there was a, a ray line that said, Leia Salonga is interested. And I dropped my margarita all over my laptop because I was so shocked. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's the other, other allegiance email that really blew my mind. <laughs> that sounds like an expensive email. <laughs> It was it was a sticky situation. <laughs> so Leah was at the top of your mind as you were writing and and in the development of the show. You know what was you know, our casting agent said? Telsey said, "Well, you know, put together your wish list. Dream big. Put the, put the people you really really want at the very very top." And so I was I audaciously wrote. Uh, George Takei, Leia Salonga, and Kelly Leon, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, you know, 
we wished it into existence. <laughs> and I think it's so powerful. The representation of Asian Americans on Broadway or in theater is so abysmal across the board. And it must have been, I can imagine Leia's excitement to get this script that is such a unique and important story and is an important part of the history. And to be able to originate a role and, and tell that story, it must have been thrilling for all of those performers. It, it was. You know, one of the other great honors of having worked on Allegiance is the, the notion that we have now provided yet another um, uh, vehicle for careers, uh, for people to perform uh, authentic stories uh, written by someone within their own community using characters that aren't two-dimensional or, or, or um, cliched uh, as they have been in so many other shows. Uh, I get so many um, thanks from young Asian performers about the uh, opportunities that this has provided, that, that uh, it's, it's really been uh, quite an honor. And I didn't go into that even thinking about that. Um, yeah, I knew representation was abysmal. Um, and it started to strike me really during auditions when I would receive um, all these uh, resumes and, uh, you know, headshots. And I would see the king and I, Miss Saigon, uh, the king and I, Miss Saigon. And I, I'm, it really struck me then that we have a lot of work to do mm. and, and that, that allegiance can help, you know, shoulder some of that burden. I'm curious, just to jump ahead a little bit, has Allegiance been licensed for... for yes, in fact, we have done regional productions in Los Angeles, in El Cerrito, in Boston. There's just one that Palo Alto Players. Mm. Uh, and um, we're gearing up to, to, to go over to London and to do a uh, off-West End run uh, over there. So details of it on uh, well, yeah, announced yet, but uh, I'm, we're hoping that all comes together. Oh, that's so exciting! Congratulations! Thank you. That's really wonderful. And I, I'm coming from Australia. I, I hope that there will be a Sydney and Melbourne production one day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a great and thriving theatre community there too, and, and lots of uh, Asian performers who are would be hungry for those roles. I'm sure. I can I can give you a few names. <laughs> <laughs> um, so rewinding back a little bit, the first reading took place at the Japanese American National Museum. Yes, it was important for us to, uh, when we talked about where we would hold this to, to really anchor it within the community and start to get community buy-in. It, it always troubled me sort of as a non-Japanese American that I was going to be telling this story and I, that I felt a bit like an imposter. And so, you know, having George as the, the face of the show really helps initially. But I also realized that um, for so many, um, as is very common in, in these situations, um, having just a little bit of distance from the story allowed me to have a fresh perspective on it. Uh, I have faced discrimination as an Asian American. I know what it's like uh, to, to be an Asian American in today's America. And uh, you know, the history of exclusion and, and uh, discrimination against Chinese Americans. Uh, and so there were some parallels, uh, but it still, um, still haunted me to see what, how, how deep that went and how, how dangerous it became 
uh, in World War II for the Japanese American community. Mm. So holding it at the Democracy Forum, that was a, um, a, a brilliant idea. I think I think George may have been the one that suggested it. Maybe it was Lorenzo, but we were able to actually put some of the initial songs in front of actual survivors and to get their feedback. Uh, oh. I remember it was actually at the Japanese American National Museum that George was giving me a delicate tour of it. Uh, and he stopped and told me about a concept uh, that they had in the camps called gaman. And I didn't know, had never heard that word before. And he said that it meant fortitude um, and with dignity. And he, he told me that people would say it to each other to fuck each other up and, and, um, to be rather stoic about what they were going through. And I thought it was so beautiful that I wrote the song around it. And it's the only song in the early days that actually survived all the way to, to Broadway. <laughs> it's, oh, it's such a beautiful song, too, and such a powerful concept. Yes, you know, that the authenticity of the concept, the realness of it, the truth of it is what I think gives it this way. Mm. Was there any other feedback from survivors that stuck with you? or stories that they told you? Uh, when I spoke with some of them, uh, one of them actually mentioned uh, that it was so important um, that we capture not only the suffering that was in the camps, but also the joy. And that really stuck with me too. Uh, she, she said that um, her brother played on a baseball team. I don't, I'm sorry that I don't remember the name of the woman who was talking to me. But uh, and then I asked George about that, and he said, oh, yes, you know, we had a baseball team, and we had socials, we had dancing. And I said, you had dancing? Said, this is great. Like, now we've got a musical. <laughs> <laughs> so when people ask, you know, like, well, you're going to set it in an internment camp? Isn't that going to be a, a big drag? It's like, you know, there are so many joyful moments uh, and moments of celebrating the human spirit that happened in the Legion because you're in the lowest of the low and people make the most of things and they grow gardens and they, they have uh, dances and they fall in love. All those things happen in, in the Legion and uh, they just happen under really, really difficult circumstances, which I think tests the limits of what people can endure and, and but also gives them so much hope, uh, so much to live for. And so, uh, you know, talking to the survivors, um, it wasn't all all just gloom and doom. Obviously, it was very dark. It was very difficult. Uh, but what they actually remember from that era were all, all the special moments they had with family. You know, sometimes I think back during pandemic, you know, um, it, we, we feel it today. It's like a lot of us will remember not just the, the being shut into our houses, but how close we grew to the people around us and to our pets and to, uh, and, and really got to know ourselves very, very well. Uh, <laughs> you'll hear that sort of repeated by the, the survivors of the Japanese and American internment, uh, that, that, uh, it was, it was a difficult time, but, but also a formative one for a lot of them. It really speaks to the resiliency of the human spirit, like you said, and, human creativity and our ability if we choose to reach to the light rather than you know falling down in the dust and giving up it's it's such a powerful idea 
Right. And I think the fact that uh, we centered it on the single family was important, too, because, you know, family is so important uh, across all of uh, Asian cultures. Uh, and, and But family, when it comes to um, Japanese-Americans, gets divided along generational lines. And, uh, you know, so much so that they have special names, you know, you say, you say, sensei, uh, for the generations because they view America and they view the role in America so differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was one of the things that, that we wanted to capture in Allegiance authentically. Uh, I learned that a lot of the folks who were in, in the camps didn't ever really want to talk to, about it, not even to their own children. And so um, it wasn't until their children grew older and started asking questions about what happened that stories began to come back out. Mm. I think that's very common of that generation, like kind of broadly speaking. I know my own grandparents who lived through um, the war in the Philippines um, didn't talk about it with their children, and it was only later in life uh, that my grandfather actually wrote a book about his experiences, but had never spoken the, the, what he'd written in the book out loud to his own children. And um, that's something I hear from other people too. Yes, and I think there was a lot of shame initially involved with uh, the loss of stature, the loss of property, uh, the you know, unfairness of it, and the powerlessness of it. That's mm-hmm. one of the things that you know, caused George to cry uh, in that show when he met him. Uh, and, and, uh, so we, 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 it was a difficult show to write because we had so many varying emotions to try to capture. Mm-hmm. And how do you balance all of that into, you know, two hours, 15 minutes? <laughs> it's, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. Uh, thank goodness we had years to workshop that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, the first full production was at the Old Globe Theater in 2012. September 2012. Yes, and I'll tell you, there's nothing quite like having your first production uh, of a Broadway-bound show <laughs> as a composer. It's, it's just a real experience. And we had standing ovations every night. It sold very, very well in San Diego. And, uh, you know, that was, it, it was really thrilling uh, and uh, very validating, especially for somebody who had quit his job and his parents probably thought he was crazy to have that happen. Uh, I want to quickly touch on the fundraising that happened to make that production happen, that uh, you started an Indiegogo campaign headed by George Takei, that the goal was $50,000 and you raised (laughs) $100,000 or $150,000. Yeah, something like $150,000, yes. Uh, You know, that... um, this was the early days of social media too. It was 2012. George's Facebook page was really taking off, and uh, people really didn't know what or how they could use social media. Uh, but uh, we were urging George to let folks know about the show, and and you know we were still um, a small production company without a lot of means, and every dollar counted, and so. Uh, the fact that George was able to just go online and in a matter of a week to raise, uh, you know, a significant portion of what we needed, um, you know, probably less, a little less than 10% of what we still needed um, for that for that production was great. Um, and, uh, you know, we use social media uh, very effectively, actually, um, throughout the uh, life 
of the development and all the way through Broadway, and especially after it went wide across America in theaters. One of the reasons we, we broke the records was because we could use social media, which is very broad but very thin. And so you could, if, if, you know, there are, you know, um, 600 avid followers of George Takei in, in a particular city, they'll fill that theater that one day. You know, that's, it's much harder to do that on Broadway at, uh, eight shows a week at a thousand feet a night. <laughs> but you can do it, uh, in a one quick blast, uh, for a single day across the country. Yeah. Fast forwarding to 2022 and in your role, um, with the social edge, what do you see? Well, first of all, can you explain what the social edge is and what do you see as the role of social media now, like with TikTok and, and show like musical theater has such a huge um, following on social media and, you know, like Bridgerton and uh, Ratatouille, the musical, you know, are developed entirely on social media and are winning awards now. What, what do you see as the current role of social media? We developed the social edge uh, after successfully helping and guiding George on social media. Uh, we developed a lot of expertise around how to build audiences, engage with them, and grow them. And uh, that turned into a, sort of a profitable business on its own. Uh, and so long after Allegiance closed, we continued with the social edge. Uh, and I never thought, having quit as an attorney, that I would become first a Broadway composer for real, and then uh, run a company that does social media. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's great now if you're producing theater and you need to build an audience quickly, you can do so uh, on TikTok, on um, YouTube, uh, by, by getting your uh, material out. Uh, it's a very, you know, uh, democratic system in some ways. Uh, you know, great content gets shared and, and, and consistent content can build an audience. Uh, we're nearing the point where whole musicals can be uh, created on social media clock, uh, <laughs> as you mentioned. Uh, we're also uh, approaching a, state, a time where um, musicals may go digital in that, you know, all these workshops that we did in physical form, which require folks to um, uh, gather together for one time, you know, if we were able to create uh, virtual spaces uh, and performances, uh, that's going to really be a game changer. So uh, you know, we're involved in some early uh, adventures, I would say, at this point, uh, in the digital space uh, around musicals. I see that as a, a very cost-effective way to develop musicals as well, because you don't have to necessarily tie yourself to a physical set. You could have um, all, you know, a virtual one, which is, a lot, uh, which is portable and, and which can uh, which people can can uh, log into from very afar and participate. Mm. Just uh, how do you deal with the sound issue that like two people can't be speaking or singing at the same time? I think that uh, we're going to have to, you know, it's kind of like the, the the issues with tech are going to drive improvements in tech. That's what I'm hoping. Uh, certainly, uh, what for shows you need to bring people together for certainly the same sound studio. But after that, uh, if they, you know, you can avatar them into a meta if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. So once you get the sound, you, there's a lot you can do with that. Um, 
And uh, so it's, it's, like I said, very early stages, but I think both television and theater are moving this way, uh, where, because otherwise costs can be very prohibitive, uh, studio costs can be prohibitive physical costs. Uh, so, so I agree, the sound is one of the biggest problems and, and really you want to get everyone together and recorded. So, you know, it's possible, for example, to start to record people separately and to mix it together, at least for the development. Yeah. So it's a fascinating thing to me how technology like in such a short time has changed so radically and allowed made all of this possible. It's very exciting. Yes, it is. I think when we continue to be on the forefront of that, I think Lorenzo has great foresight and uh, he himself is sort of a tech nerd and so loves this kind of thing. <laughs> so going right, rewinding back, uh, you had further workshops between um, the run at the Old Globe and then opening on Broadway. And I love in the documentary, there's one scene where uh, you're watching the Broadway marquee go off at the Long Acre and George Takei's face is just so in awe and so radiant and so beautiful. <laughs> it's such a stunning moment. What was that journey like for you? You know, uh, it was it was wonderful to see the journey through George's eyes as well as my own because he had always wanted to be a stage actor, and to, for him to to have his Broadway debut in his seventies was something he had never imagined in his life that that would happen. We had a lot of that sort of happen. Our conductor Laura Brookwith had her Broadway debut as a grandmother. That uh, so, and it it shows that you know. Um, you, people who are, you know, into their late forties and they're thinking, oh, I don't have, uh, I don't have it in me. I don't have the time left in, in my life to do these wonderful things that I've always dreamt of. That's, that's nonsense. Uh, it can happen. And, and you just have to, to make the leap. You know, I, I waited till I was 40 to, to make the leap. So I think that, uh, that was a great to see and to, a gift that I could give George. I think of George as sort of like a grandfather figure. Uh, I really should say father figure. He'd probably kill me if it's a grandfather figure, but he's an Oji chan, right? So, uh, and, and he, he, he actually played older than he was, uh, uh, you know, in real life. But, uh, so, so, and his joy is infectious and, and his dedication is infectious. You know, in all of the run, uh, in Old Globe and on the Broadway run in the Los Angeles, um, regional production where he increased the role, uh, George was the only cast member never to miss a show, a single show. Wow. You know, and that's, so you talk about, um, a, a fellow now who's in his 80s, but like who, his, his, his gaman, you know, <laughs> his point <laughs> with the show, yeah. uh, really, really, um, is, is remarkable and inspirational. That's so beautiful. Oh, I'm a, I'm a little bit teary. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you mentioned earlier that you had always intended to film the show. So what was the process behind filming Allegiance on Broadway? Uh, luckily, we had had uh, experience filming the world premiere in San Diego. So we knew what it took uh, in terms of the number of digital cameras we needed. We, we knew we were going to get some outtakes afterwards. We knew that sometimes um, we would have to... Uh, uh, have folks sing back to track. Uh, it, it was, it was, um, pretty, really, really well thought out by Lorenzo who directed it. 
Um, he has um, an affinity for film, and, and I think secretly wants to be a film director one day. He he mapped this out really, really well, but it was very interesting. I would always sit with him, the two of us in a small studio, I think it was in Austin, going frame by frame and choosing different frames and, and putting it together. We did the editing ourselves, you know, for for uh, a lot of the stuff. And uh, not for the Broadway run, I think for the, for, for the other runs. We, we put it all together patiently. And it, it allowed us to see, um, to, to, to show the story that we wanted shown. In other words, it wasn't some external editors deciding to take uh, shots. It was, it was us. And uh, so the process was was created. It was artistic. It wasn't. Um, it, it was uh, far more involved than I think people realize. Um, and and the choices that you have to make with respect to which takes and and what shots and and how the music runs. And and I got to give credit, by the way, to music director. Uh, and, and conductor, uh, Lynn Shankle, uh, who is a machine when it comes to tempo. She, she just, it wouldn't matter which production or which shot or what you were doing, the song would be at the, at the same tempo. And, and so it was so easy to splice because, it, and who knows how, who can do that? It, 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 it was a, a crazy, uh, revelation of us that she, we, we didn't have to ever have to worry about that because <laughs> the songs were always at the same tempo. Human so. metronome. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How many performances were filmed? You know, just one. That's what's uh, crazy. We the budget for, was for one, and so we we did it on a day where we knew there was going to be a boisterous crowd, and and uh, it, everything that that we, you know. We need to do outtakes as well and get the camera up on stage. And so those are the things that actually took a lot of time holding the cast afterwards and saying, okay, so let's do that same scene, uh, mouth the words, uh, and the camera will be up on stage, uh, you know, so, uh, and then we'll splice it all together. Uh, and those special shots, um, I think are really what puts a nice finishing touch on that production. Mm. And how many cameras did you use when you filmed it? I think there were four, but you know, there was one in the back, two, one on each side, and then there was a steady cam. Uh, and so I think there were four. Uh, I would have to ask Lorenzo for sure, though, because it's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a beautiful capture, and um, I'm, I'm, it's amazing to me that it was over one night with just the pickup shots because <laughs> it it looks so slick it's it's amazing that it's essentially one performance yeah and you know it's credit to the actors for turning in a flawless uh we really we wouldn't get a second chance at this it was just not the budget for it this is a pretty expensive venture to do <laughs> um and so i think lorenzo went on to to direct um uh bandstand mm -hmm. uh which was filmed uh, also with a beautiful result. Like he put a lot of thought into where the camera would be, who it would focus on, and whether it would be a close up, whether it like a lot of thought, shot by shot by shot, mm. and mapped it all out um, after after seeing the show several times. Is singing Allegiance he had seen so many times that, that he he could just do it right the back of his hand. <laughs> <laughs> is Sing Out Louise Productions uh, your entity or is it a separate group? Um, it is, uh, I'm a partner in it. Lorenzo's the other partner and we have an associate producer, Joey. 
And so the three of us are missing out, Louise. And, you know, we want to do more captures uh, that are along the, um, you know, same quality as Best and Allegiance. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Thing out also is really good at promoting films productions. Uh, we, we promoted Kinky Boots. We did um, um, Anything Goes recently. So, so we, um, we have a, a, sort of a niche expertise in this. What we're hoping is that that producers uh, do is start to think ahead to that film's uh, version of the show. Um, it's a beautiful gift for the cast and uh, in the way, the same way that cast goblins, but it's so important to reach audiences with. They can't make it to Broadway. And to if they could capitalize the cost of the um, of the film capture right into the into the budget at the outset, then they wouldn't be worried about later about coming up with, you know, the hundreds of thousands of million dollars that it takes to to capture. Mm. Do you think that thinking ahead to filming productions is going to change the way we stage theater with the idea that it will be filmed later? Or do you think that people are, no, theater first, and but the film is in the back of our minds kind of thing? I think we're we're the second. I think the directors are, they want to create a great live um, production and we'll we'll figure out afterwards how to get the camera uh, into capture. I think that's the way to go, really. Like, you don't, you want it to feel as live as possible Mm. and, uh, you know, and let's, let's produce in some ways with less less artifice when it comes to the filming and more, more, you know, real. That's what sets it apart from movie musicals, which, uh, you know, where there's no audience, so uh, and and uh, and the stakes are not as high in terms of the filming. Mm. Um, what would you say to other producers or cre- composers who are hesitant to stream or to film their work? I would say that that the streaming actually increases the value of the brand and the property far more than the risk of, of piloted um, copies or the risk that you're cannibalizing your audience on Broadway. Uh, there is no indication that uh, the fact that Hamilton was captured and, and is available on Disney Plus has reduced Hamilton in any way as a property. In fact, people want that live experience. And if the closest they can get to it is the film's live experience, then they're going to want the live experience even more after that, because it's just uh, something that, that that sticks with them, and that you know they see they've seen over and over. I've, I've said so many people who have seen the um, the screen capture version of Allegiance who then can't wait for the regional production comes. Mm-hmm. So it's a ticket mover. Yeah, I it's music to my ears. You're speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> We talked about earlier how uh, Allegiance sold out cinemas across the country when it was uh, screened in cinemas. What was the response? You know that we we had uh, really an amazing response, especially um, I've got to say, shout out to Asian American fandom out there because uh, they really made it a cold open for us in some ways. You know they. They filled the theaters, and in Hawaii, I heard that they sold out within ten minutes of going online. There just weren't enough theaters showing it, and so um, it was enough so that we decided to do it again just three months later 
and then again uh, on on the Pearl Harbor day. So uh, this response has been fantastic. I think that uh, that um, it, the other thing is a lot of of educators saw it during that run and then want it want the DVD or the streaming for their educational uh, courses, which, which is music to my ears because I really do feel that the impact of the show goes far beyond sort of just financial or artistic, it's really about preserving uh, a chapter of our history and doing it in a way that's accessible to students where they're going to remember, where, they, where their minds are going to be opened and their hearts are going to be uh, touched by it. And that, so that, that I think, um, has been the, the great, the great response that we have seen. Uh, anyway, it, it showed overseas in Japan and, and that was, that made me nervous because they had, <laughs> they did the whole, uh, you know, to have it in front of Japanese audiences and, you know, they, a lot of them had never heard the story, but it was very well received in Japan. Oh, that's great. And then there was a production in Japanese that actually happened during pandemic that went on tour and like, they managed to get through the, uh, the, the, um, the chaos of the pandemic, but it was also very, very well received. Oh, I would love to see that. That would be so interesting. It reminds me of seeing Fiddler in Yiddish and how like it just, it, changed the whole play for me it was it was so powerful oh yeah and you can go on you can go online and, and look up higher and there i think that there are youtube uh uh clips of this in japanese uh being sung in japanese oh, wow. <laughs> okay i will find them and include them in the show notes <laughs> that's super cool so you mentioned a, a potential london production for allegiance what what else yes. what do we what else is in the future for the show well, I think that um, I, I really want to double down on and getting it into classrooms. I think that that is um, a very important step, now, especially now that it's streaming um, and the DVD is widely available, uh, to work with educators uh, and libraries to make sure it's available uh, for, for folks. Um, you know, we would love to um, uh, take this to other countries, this show, because it's a part of American history that America has been a little ashamed to tell. And I think that's uh, important to do so. So, you know, someday down the road, French productions, German productions, who knows? Australian productions. <laughs> Australian productions, yes. <laughs> I'm campaigning for it. <laughs> uh, so next up, we have uh, my favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. So to start us off, what is your favorite musical? My favorite musical is Thunder in the Park with George. I, I think because it talks about the struggles of an actor balancing his art and his life, I really, really, it really resonated with me. And uh, I used to, I was sort of a sensitive kid. I listened to that uh, cast album, Crying Myself to Sleep, listening to it. Uh, I think the day Sondheim passed is one of the, the saddest days I can remember in a while. So Sunday in the Park with George, way, way, way up there, probably the blue one. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Do you have a favorite filmed live musical? Uh, favorite filmed live musical? Um, but besides the least. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I would say... Uh, you know, I, I haven't been a big fan 
of the NBC live musical uh, films, uh, like par- partially because I think some, some of it has to do with casting. Uh, I would say uh, I did enjoy Kinky Boots, um, the London production that, you know, that shows just so much fun. Um, and uh, Into the Woods, <laughs> as a, as a, the, that cast uh, is, is just astonishing. And, and uh, seeing it in front of a live audience uh, made me fall in love with that show. So I would say, I would say Into the Woods. I, I love oh, another time. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I love Into the Woods for being it's uh, a gateway drug for many people into musical theater, I yeah. think. <laughs> <laughs> um so a filmed life musical isn't exactly a stage show and it's not exactly a movie. So what should we call them? An experience. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. Where do you stand on bootlegs? Well, you know, so I, we, I get notifications of, of outrageous bootlegs um, all the time, often they're in, chi- in, in chi- Chinese websites. Uh, these are audiences I don't think they could see the show who um, weren't bootlegs. So it doesn't bother me that much. Um, I didn't really go into this business for the money, and so I don't really feel like they're taking anything from me. In fact, they're sort of spreading the gospel. Uh, I do think that... Um, the hard thing about bootlegs is that actors don't always get presented in the best way uh, because the quality isn't good. Um, and so uh, it's a little unfair to the performers uh, that that this particular thing is being captured and being shared. It's a little intrusive, I think, when it comes to that. So for us composers, I, you know, I, I, I sort of take it as sort of a, a tax that happens upon our industry, but I do totally understand the creators and the performers who really don't want that version of their work out there. And this is why we need more pro shots. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What stage musicals do you wish had been filmed? Oh gosh. Uh, Well, I I wish they had filmed Hades town before uh, uh, Amber and and Andre went out to the show. Um, This is, what we want to stress with people is that there's this history happening and, you know, you want to get a great high def recording before, um, because, uh, you know, we are co-producers at Hades Town and, you know, so, uh, it was, um, you know, we don't call the shots on that show. Um, it did win us a Tony, but we don't call <laughs> the shots on that show. And I, I just wish that had happened, mm-hmm. uh, because it's so, they're so wonderful and so unique. Yeah. That that uh, I hate to think that that if you didn't see it live in New York, you wouldn't won't get a chance to experience that. Mm. And then couple that with the beautiful footage of Andre's last performance, uh, the curtain call, and him singing from the Wiz. It's it was so powerful and so beautiful, and such an important moment. And like you say, it's a shame that the whole show hasn't been captured. Yes, and this is why I want to emphasize the producers get it into the contracts uh, and the budget and with all the actors early on before it becomes a hit and before it becomes a gigantic nightmare to negotiate, um, do it early and get everyone's buy-in on the idea of it, get it, get it paid for. And then it's no, no big deal to do. Don't wait till you're a mega hit or wait till you're out of money. <laughs> Either one doesn't work. 
Right. <laughs> I, I really hope it becomes standard one day. Um, what stage musicals would you like to see filmed in the future? Speaking of. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to do a little plug for the one we're working on right now called Indigo, uh, which is going to the Human Race Theater. It's a show that for the first time will star uh, an autistic girl in the principal part um, because it's about um, autism and uh, the way it affects the family and uh, brings uh, that family together. It's very, very near to me. I, mean, I love to tell stories, like I said earlier in this podcast about uh, and, and using music to tell it, to tell underrepresented stories or stories of the otherwise voiceless. Uh, very important to me. And so, um, uh, Indigo, which is going to go to Ohio's Human Rights Theater next summer. Uh, we hope to bring it to Broadway uh, one day. And then when it does, again, um, we thought about this. We want to get it filmed, and we want to make sure that uh, the whole world can see it, even if you don't get a chance to see it on Broadway. That is music to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's truly wonderful and I wish you all the best uh, for the production of that show and I can't wait to see it when it comes to Broadway and when I can stream it <laughs> thank you um, finally where can we find you online uh, I'm primarily on Facebook uh, I'm sort of on that generation so follow me at facebook.com uh, slash n-y-c-j-a-y-j-a-y um, I'm also on Twitter but that's mostly for my uh, sub stack but, but I post regularly on Facebook, and so uh, that's where I sort of got my start with George Takei and, and uh, where I've, I've, I've wound up with my own following. So I'm very busy still on Facebook. Yeah, that puts me into the Gen X, I guess, realm. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, find me on Facebook there yeah, uh, and uh, follow me. Fabulous. And I will include links to that uh, your page in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today, Jay. It's been really wonderful to chat with you. It's been great. Thank you for having me. The Filmed Live Musicals podcast is created and edited by your host, Louisa Lyons. With thanks to our wonderful patrons, Josh Brandon, Gerilyn Brewer, Belinda Broido, Elliot Charles, Gillian Dos Santos, Rachel Esteban, Mercedes Esteban Lyons, David Jones, James T. Lane, Heather Madrone, Alison Matthews, Al Monaco, David Negrin, Amy Penn, Gerald Piper, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, David and Catherine Rabinowitz, Joe Tilliston, and Beck Twist for financially supporting the site. FilmedLiveMusicals.com is the most comprehensive list of film stage musicals. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. If you would like early access to this very podcast, early access to site content, the full weekly newsletter with info on upcoming streams and exclusive access to the streaming calendar, become a Filmed Live Musicals patron for as little as $3 a month. And if you're outside the US, you can sign up in your local currency. Visit filmedlivemusicals.com to learn more. If you like what you hear, please leave a review in your podcast app. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thanks for listening.